maybe you were surprised this morning where we ended our text. You thought, wait a minute, like, we're going to end in verse 6? What about the woman at the well? It's a great story. You, you just stopped. Well, that was intentional. Uh, so hold on. We're going to look at one thing today, really, and that is what it means for Jesus to be truly human. Right? We believe as Christians that Jesus is truly God and truly man. And I want us to ponder the significance of Jesus being truly man today. What does it mean for us as believers? What does it mean for us now? What does it mean for our future? And so that's where we're going to be this morning. John 4, 1 to 6, the title of my sermon, Jesus the God-Man. The big idea, Jesus became human to show us what it means to be human and to bring humanity to God. Okay, so let me say that again. Jesus became human to show us what it means to be human and to bring humanity to God. Our closest friends, who's got friends? I've, uh, I've done a few talks with men in church settings where I've spoken on gospel friendship, and I've asked that question multiple times, you know, who has friends? And if I, if I see men not raising their hand, I'll often say, I'll, I'll be your friend. Friends are important. Well, good. So most of us, hopefully all of us have friends. Our closest friends, if you have a close friend, our closest friends tend to be those with whom we share similar life experiences, right? Those who can say, wait, 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 wait. You too? You, you've been through that as well? You've lived there? That's your favorite team? Man, I, I saw this interview, I don't know, months ago. And it was a well-known actor. He's older now, and uh, I'm not going to say how old, but he's an older man. And uh, he's from, I think, either Ireland or Scotland. And uh, he's, he's in this interview. He's, he's done a new movie, and Matt Ramsey's already laughing. But, uh, you know, I'm sure I've never been an actor, but I know when these actors and actresses promote a movie, they do thousands, it seems, of interviews. And that has to be tiresome, right? And frustrating, and I'd rather be somewhere else. And so you can tell, if you watch this interview, it just kind of starts off, and this famous actor is just like, oh my goodness, let's get this over with, right? But then he realizes, wait a minute, this, this guy interviewing me sounds like me, right? And he's just talking, and then all of a sudden he's like, you know, where are you from? What, where, are you, where are you hell? And, and then he says, this village, this small remote, remote village in Ireland or Scotland, I forget which one it was, and he's like, wait a minute, that's what I'm from. And it was beautiful because all of a sudden they realized we're from the same place, this small, obscure village. And now they're not even talking about the movie. They're talking about where they grew up. They're talking about you know, places they visited, even family and friends. And it was like you saw this friendship develop. It was really cool. Anyways, the point I'm trying to make is this. Our closest friends tend to be those with whom we share similar life experiences. You know, what a friend we have in Jesus. We're going to end with that song this morning. Who's familiar with the tune, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? Why is Jesus the truest of friends? Why? Because he can relate to us. Did you know that? Jesus can relate to us. And why can he relate to us? Why? Because he, like us, is truly human. He knows what it means to suffer, to experience loss, to experience hurt, to experience pain. He knows and he cares. And thankfully, he has done something 
through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection to both meet our greatest need and to one day put an end to our suffering. Again, what a friend we have in Jesus. So what are the implications of Jesus' humanity for mankind and God's church? This is the so what question. If you walk up to somebody on the streets and you say, hey, guess what? Jesus, the Savior of the world, is fully man, they may say, so what? Who cares? What does that mean? That's what we're going to answer this morning. Now, who was here last week? Who can tell me the phrase that I repeated a dozen times last week? Jesus is the... Oh, that's terrible. (laughs) Wow. He's the greatest. He's the greatest. Here's why I bring up last week. One, it's context, and it's important that you look at where have we come from since, you know, last week. John 3, 31 to 36. There appears to be, so I can't read the whole passage. I'll paint a picture. There appears to be a dramatic contrast between how Jesus is portrayed in John 3, 31 to 36. Again, that was last week's passage. And how Jesus is presented in John 4, 1 to 6, which is obviously our passage for today. Last week we saw, if you were here, that Jesus is the greatest. He's above all. He's from above. He speaks the very words of God. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he gives what? He gives eternal life. And we're meant to kind of step back after John 3, 31 to 36 and say, wow, Jesus really is the greatest. There's no one like him. And then we come to our passage today. Now follow me here. We come to our passage today and we read, so Jesus, wearied, wearied, tired, exhausted, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Now, this image might cause the reader to say aloud, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is this the same Jesus we just read about in John 3, 31 to 36? The all-powerful Jesus, the Jesus who came from heaven to give eternal life, that Jesus. And now we find him tired and resting? How can this be? Why would John include this? Now, theologians for many centuries have talked about the hypostatic union. What is that? You're going to get some church history review this morning. I love church history. This refers to the union of Christ's human and divine natures in one being. Now, the clear testimony of the scriptures is that Jesus is both truly God and truly, he's truly man, right? So here's a quick review of church history. And I'm going to kind of stay within the 5th century. It's the 400s, right? So The 5th century, it's a long time ago, witnessed, like today, an attack on the nature of Christ. Multiple heresies, and I'm going to talk about two of them primarily, but multiple heresies. A heresy is a false teaching, a teaching that does not line up with Scripture. So multiple heresies rose up that challenged what Christians had traditionally believed about the person of Jesus Christ. Now the first, are you ready for this? The monophysite heresy. Monophysite, what are we talking about today? Just bear with me. It was started by a man named Eutyches. Eutyches. We're not supposed to like him, by the way. 
Okay? He was an enemy to the church. He argued that Christ only had one nature, denying that he was one person with two natures, one divine and one human. Yeah, the Docetists, and this is a little bit older heresy, they argued that Jesus was completely divine with no humanity. Another, uh, I would say maybe as popular as the monophysite heresy at the time of the 5th century was Nestorianism. Now, the person who started this, his name was, it's named after him, Nestorius, he argued that since Christ has two natures, one divine and the other human, he must therefore have two distinct personalities. If there are two natures, he argued there must be two persons. So in comes the Chalcedonian Council. Everybody say, dun, dun, dun. Don't, actually don't do that, right? We'll talk about the council, the Chalcedonian Council. R.C. Sproul writes, these heresies, I mean, again, these are, these are two massive heresies. The nature of Christ is being attacked. This is a big deal. These heresies prompted the council of Chalcedon. And from that council came the classic formulation of the dual nature, dual meaning two, dual nature of Christ, namely that Christ is one person with how many natures? Two natures, right? Little Latin, vera homo, vera deus. Christ has a true human nature and a true divine nature. And these two natures are perfectly united in one person. And the council used four statements, four negative statements to explicate this doctrine. The two natures of Jesus, number one, are without mixture, without confusion, number two, without separation, number three, and without division, number four. Now, understand this. The Council of Chalcedon didn't come up with this doctrine, but rather its purpose was to officially recognize or formally recognize what the church had historically believed about the person of Jesus Christ over and against other heretical views. Who would agree, and you can raise your hand, that doctrine is important? Most of us believe that. Now, I know we all do, right? If you're a Christian, you have to believe that, right? What we believe, that's doctrine. Okay, doctrine. Again, doctrine, and you're like, what is doctrine? What is doctrine? Doctrine refers to what the Bible teaches about any given subject. What does the Bible teach us about Jesus? Namely, his nature, his personhood. Now, some may say that today's sermon is a theological sermon. But I'm going to argue that's an unnecessary category. For all sermons are to be theological. And that all sermons should speak to the nature of God revealed in the Word of God. I mean, every sermon should be theological because every sermon should speak to the nature of God revealed in the Word of God. Today's sermon will focus primarily on one particular doctrine, which is the truth revealed in Scripture that Jesus is truly human. He's also truly God. He's the God-man. Amen? But we're going to focus on his humanity today. Now, the humanity of Jesus is more significant than we first might realize. The implications are far-reaching. I promise you, it should challenge and transform the way we think about humanity. Knowing that Jesus became man should challenge the way we think about humanity. 
and especially the inherent value, the inherent dignity and sacredness of human life. Now, what's ironic and maybe unexpected for those who are familiar with John's gospel is the amount of emphasis that John places on the humanity of Jesus. When you read John's gospel, you typically think the emphasis on the deity of Christ, right? I mean, you have John 1.1 out the gate. What does John 1.1 say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, at the very beginning, John wants us to know that Jesus is God. And then you have the multiple I am statements. And we looked at the first one in John 6.35, where Jesus says what? I'm the... Oh, man... (laughs) I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Right? Where do those I am's come from? They come from Exodus 3, when God reveals himself to Israel in the burning bush. God lays out his mission. And then there's this question. What does Moses say? Okay, so I, I hear what you're saying. And when I go tell the people that you sent me, what's your name? And what name does God give? I am. Jesus takes on that name. I am. Throughout John's gospel, then we have the mighty acts or miracles of Jesus. And so there's all this emphasis on the deity of Christ. But did you know that John's gospel spends a lot of time actually emphasizing the humanity of Christ? For example, Jesus had a human body, a body that grew tired. That's what we saw in John 4, verse 6. Jesus got thirsty. He got thirsty. That's John 4, 7, John 19, 28. Next, we see that Jesus had a human soul with human emotions. In John 12, 27, Jesus said, now, now is my soul troubled. And then the famous passage in John 11 at the tomb of Lazarus, it's one verse. I think it's the shortest verse in all of scripture. John eleven thirty five. 35, it says, Jesus wept. Two words, he wept. Now we come to our two questions for today. What are the implications of Jesus' humanity for mankind? And number two, and we're going to end here, and this is really important, why, why was it necessary for Jesus to become human? Why was it necessary? So what does it mean for us? Why was it necessary? Are you ready? Even if you're not, here we go. Number one, what are the implications of Jesus' humanity for mankind. What does it mean for mankind that Jesus became human? It means that we have inherent dignity, right? Now, this goes against the Greek thought. Greek thought, the Greeks believed that this, you know, this is very sophomoric, okay? I'm not going to delve into this too much, but hear me out. The Greeks, the ancient Greeks believed, not all of them, but most of them believed, that the spirit or the spiritual realm, but the spirit was inherently good, and the physical, like our physical bodies, was inherently bad, okay? The goal of this life, therefore, was to escape the physical. That was Greek thought. This goes against the biblical view established all the way back in Genesis 1. When God creates the physical, what does he say? It's what? It's good. And then after he creates Adam and Eve, these divine image bearers, he makes them to image him, right? To reflect him, what does he say? It's very good, right? It's very good. Now, after the fall, after Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, 
the image of God in mankind was fractured and thus in need of restoration and new creation. And so what did God do? What did God do? He became man to heal humanity. He became man to restore humanity. God became man to save humanity. Again, the fact that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became truly human means what? God values human life. You know, the the incarnation, this is this beautiful doctrine that the Son of God became man, albeit a mystery, speaks to the great value that God places on human life. Aren't you thankful that God values human life? And if God values human life, we should value human life. Makes sense, right? Again, if God became man to redeem or rescue humanity, then how should we think about human life? How should humans think about human life? They should highly value it. And when does human life begin, by the way? It begins at conception. Therefore, abortion is to be seen as an egregious attack against human life. The very human life that who values? God values. The fact of the matter is that, and I think we would all agree with this, humanity. Are we sinful? Yes. And because we are sinful, humanity does not value life the way it should. We are, by nature, murderers at heart. God's revealed will in his word is that we care for human life, right? That's clear in Scripture. And yet, because of sin, we don't naturally share God's heart for human life. We are naturally what? We're naturally self-serving. We slander. We gossip. We murder. All of which reveals our need for a Savior. What God did by becoming truly human to die a truly human death for fallen humanity. Everybody say us. He did to save and restore humanity, but also to empower his rescued people to share his heart for humanity. Now, one more thing worth mentioning. This is just kind of a nugget. This is really cool. Think about this. What's really incredible is that Jesus still has a human body today. What? He did not shed his humanity after death, but was raised in a resurrection body. And he remains in that resurrection body today. Wow. That's pretty cool. Number two, the second question, this is where we're going to spend most of our time. What of our second question? Number two, why was it necessary for Jesus to become human? Now, maybe some of you are wondering, and I appreciate your honesty if this is where you're at. Who cares? Who cares? Why does it matter that Jesus is both fully human and fully God? It matters greatly. It's enormous. It's huge. And I want to show you why. Can I show you why? I want to show you why. Simply put, the gospel, the good news, demands the humanity of Jesus. I want you to see, I want us all to see, that if Christ was not fully human, then there is no gospel. Do you realize that? And maybe you're thinking, it sounds right. I think you're onto something, Chris, but will you show me? Yes, I will. You know, theologians and Bible scholars have 
typically provided, if you've read multiple systematic theologies, they're all going to talk about you know, the, the two natures, right? Jesus is fully God and fully man. And when you come to the, the second question, you know, what does it mean that he's fully man or what are the implications? If you read any great theology textbook, you're going to typically come across the same six to seven answers to this question from Scripture. And I want to borrow from Wayne Grudem, and yet I'm going to elaborate each point in my own words. So under our final question, again, we have two questions. We've answered number one. Now we're looking at number two. Under our final question, we'll be looking at seven answers. How many? Okay, and these will be uh, A to G. Seven answers to the question, why? Why was it necessary for Jesus to become human? A. We'll start with A. I'm going to move relatively quickly, so hold on to your hats. A for representative obedience. For representative obedience. Let me explain. Paul, in Romans 5, 12 to 21, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, speaks of Jesus as the second or last Adam. We know about the first Adam, right? Jesus is the second Adam. Furthermore, Jesus often takes on the title in the Gospels, Son of God. Now, Son of Man, but also Son of God. Israel, too, the nation of Israel, is referred to as God's Son throughout the Old Testament, as his collective children. So here's the point. Where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus would succeed. He's the true Adam and true Israel. God made mankind to know him, love him, enjoy him, and obey him. So we can all say, yes, mankind owes God its obedience. Do we owe God obedience? Yes, we do. And yet, what do we see time and time again? What's our own personal experience? Mankind disobeys. We see it with Adam and Eve in the garden, and we see it with Israel. Obedience, I want everybody to get this, obedience is a debt we simply cannot pay because of our sin nature. And yet Christ, the true man, has paid that debt for us. Amen. Oh my goodness. Christ not only died for us, but he he lived for us. He lived a perfect life in our place. Again, Scripture demands, it demands a human representative for fallen humanity. And Jesus is the perfect man in our place. In fact, if you read Isaiah, or if you're British, Isaiah, we're not, so we'll keep saying Isaiah. Isaiah speaks, if you, I think starting in verse, uh, sorry, chapter 40 all the way to 55, it's a big portion of Isaiah, 40 to 55, Isaiah speaks of a servant to come who would do and be all that Israel as a nation was called to do and be and yet failed to do and be. Who is that servant? Who is he? It's Jesus. As one brother writes, Jesus had to be a man in order to be our representative in our place. So for those who trust in Jesus, here's the good news. For those who trust in Jesus, his obedience is now reckoned as their obedience. His righteousness as their 
righteousness. Here's B. B. To be a substitute sacrifice. Why did Jesus have to become human? To be a substitute sacrifice. Not only did we need a perfect man to live for us, but a man to do what? Die for us as well. So points A and B are intricately linked together. In order for Jesus to die for us as our perfect, sinless substitute, he had to first live a perfectly sinless life, which he did. Therefore, his death is effectual, meaning it's effective for all those who trust in him. Check this out. This is really good. Listen to Hebrews. Hebrews 2, verse 14, and then Hebrews 2, 16 and 17. Listen carefully. to he- If you have time, you know, Bible sword drill, turn. Hebrews 2, 14, Hebrews 2, 16, 17. Okay. Verse 14. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. Okay, so he became flesh and blood. Jesus became fully man. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now we're going to move to verse 16, and I really want us to listen to verse 17, please. 17. 16 first. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, here it is. He had, he had. Everybody say he had. Not, it was a good idea. It was strongly encouraged, right? He had. When you have to do something, what? You got to do it. It's demanded. It's absolutely necessary. Listen to verse 17. Therefore, he had. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay, so the writer of Hebrews stresses the absolute necessity of Jesus' humanness. Did you catch it? Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Simply put, In order for Jesus to be an effective sacrifice and substitute for humanity, he had to be made fully human. Listen to this quote from a scholar. This is so good. The Son of God had to become man because God was concerned with saving men. The Son of God had to become man because God was concerned with saving men, right? Humans. All right, see to be the one mediator between God and men. Here we see, again, the necessity of the hypostatic union, the doctrine that teaches that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. Recall 1 Timothy 2.5. There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. In order for Jesus to serve, listen, in order for Jesus to serve, As the perfect mediator, the go-between between God and man, he had to be both fully God and man. And this fits with what we saw last week in John 3, 31 to 36. Jesus is the greatest. He's the greatest. There's no one like Jesus. He alone is the God-man. Amen? He's the God-man. 
Who alone is able to represent God to us and us to God? Who alone? Who alone can represent God to us and us to God? Only the God-man, Jesus Christ. You know, this doctrine, it's incredible. It reminds us of the uniqueness of Jesus because he's the only God-man. And because of that, listen, here's what I want you to get. Because of that, there is no place for intermediaries between people in Jesus, such as saints or priests. There's no need for that. Why? Who do we need? Who is the only one that can relate God to us and us to God? Only Jesus. Only Jesus is necessary and only Jesus is sufficient. None but Jesus will do. Everybody say none but Jesus will do. Believe that, please. So what have we seen thus far? Let me review and we'll finish up. Jesus lived the perfectly obedient human life. Amen? He lived the life we couldn't live as the perfect human. Again, where Adam and Eve failed and where Israel failed, who succeeded? Jesus. Jesus served as our perfect, sinless sacrifice and substitute. And Jesus is the only suitable go-between or mediator between God and man. All right, D. Got to move. D. To fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule over creation. And I'm adding here, and to spread his rule over his world. To spread his rule over his world. Now, when we go back to Genesis 1, we learn of God's vocation. What's a vocation? It's a job, right? We learn of God's job. What is his job for Adam and Eve? For humanity. It is for them to rule over God's creation as God's representatives and to extend the boundaries of the garden and thus spread the glory of God across his created world. That is an awesome, and I'm using that word correctly, that is an awesome vocation from God, right? For Adam and Eve as his image bearers, to represent him and spread his glory across his world? Oh, this is what it means to be made in the image of God. Of course, we know that Adam and Eve rejected their vocation as God's image bearers, made to rule over his creation for his glory. But we also know that this vocation was passed on to who? It's passed on to Israel. Israel functioning as a second Adam, in a sense, Right? After God rescues Israel in the book of Exodus, he brings them back to the mountain. And then in Exodus 19, verse 6, he gives them his vocation. What is it? And you, Israel, shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was to represent God in the world as lights, pointing humanity to the true Lord and King. And what we see from Adam and Eve to Israel is that God's vocation for humanity was always the same. Namely, for God's image bearers to represent God in his world, in subjection to him, spreading his glory across his world. Adam and Eve failed, and they were evicted. Have you ever been evicted? Don't raise your hand. They were evicted, kicked out of the garden. And then, of course, Israel failed. And what happened to them? They were evicted from the promised land. 
And that was the just consequence for their failure to live as God's image bearers in subjection to the true king and for his glory. But in comes Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world according to John 8, 12. Amen? Who's the true light of the world? Christ. And Jesus is the perfect image bearer, given all authority in heaven and on earth for the purpose of what? Spreading God's rule over his world. In fact, we learn that redeemed humanity, if you're rescued, if you've trusted in Jesus, we learn that redeemed or rescued humanity has the image of God restored in them through Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. And further, rescued or redeemed humanity in Christ is given the spirit of Christ to fulfill God's vocation for humanity. What is the Great Commission? Go make disciples. Spread my glory. To who? To the nations. And what's the end of the promise? And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, who knows the end of the story? Who's excited about how this story ends? It's a good ending, amen? The end of our story paints a glorious picture of God's rescued people ruling and reigning with Christ over a renewed creation where God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's Revelation 3.21. As Gudrun reminds us, Jesus had to be a man in order to fulfill God's original purpose that man rule over his creation. All right, D, this is so good, D, to be our example and pattern in life. This is such an encouraging point and such a major theme in Scripture. Christ, as truly man, is our example in life and death. Amen? I mean, aren't you thankful for the example of Jesus? Jesus shows us how to live. He shows us how to suffer. Jesus shows us how to die in a way that honors and pleases God. Now, if Christ wasn't truly human, then he could not serve as our example. Is true? If he wasn't human, could he be an example for humans? Say it in Spanish. We haven't done that in a while. No, of course not. No. In order for Christ to be our example, he had to be truly or fully human. 1 John 2.6, John writes, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What is John calling us to do? Follow whose example? Walk like who? Walk like Jesus. Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God's plan for his people is that we be conformed to the image of Christ. 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, Leaving you a what? An example. So that you might follow in his steps. Whose steps? Christ's steps. How? How? Because he's fully human. Hebrews 12, 2, one of my favorites. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the reoccurring call from Scripture is that Christians imitate who? Christ. You know, the gods of ancient Greece were honored 
for their heroic acts, but they were beyond empathy. Why? There was no relating to them. Jesus, because he became truly man, has set a reasonable example for his people to follow. F, to be the pattern for our redeemed bodies. Now get this, friends. Christ is at the center of our hope for this life in the next. Christ is at the center of our hope for both this life and the next life. As Christians, how do we know we're going to be raised? How do we know? How do we know? How do we know we're going to be raised? That we, we too are going to have resurrection bodies one day. How do we know that? Because Jesus was raised. And as Christians, what sort of resurrection body can we expect? A resurrection body like that of Jesus. Amen? A resurrection body like that of Jesus. Listen carefully to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to 23. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. He's the first fruits, right? Christ died and was raised. We're going to die, but one day because Christ was raised. Again, it's if you plant a garden, you wait for that first bud to pop up through the soil. And that first bud means there's going to be more what? More buds, right? Or if you're popping popcorn. I'm not being irreverent here. It's an illustration, right? Again, our microwave, 234, is perfect. That popcorn's going to be perfect. As soon as I hear that first pop, what's guaranteed? Unless the power goes out. What's guaranteed? More pops, right? The first pop guarantees more pops. The first bud guarantees more buds. Christ is the first fruits. He was raised, and we know that we too shall be, we shall be raised. We shall be raised. Our, this is so good. Our future hope is tethered. It is tethered to the humanity of Jesus. Jesus, this is from Grudem. Jesus had to be raised as a man in order to be the firstborn from the dead. That's from Colossians 1.18. The pattern for the bodies that we would later have. G. Our last point, G. And this is the sweetest point, I think. I'm really excited for G. Are you with me? Let's finish strong. To sympathize as our high priest. Oh, Let's turn to the book of Hebrews together. This is so good. Hebrews 2.18. For because... He himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Did you, did you hear that? Because he, Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why can Jesus help us? Because he, being truly human, was also tempted. Who can relate to us? Who can help us in our weakness? None. None like Jesus. Amen? And then let's go to Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. <laughs> For we do not have a high priest who was unable. We don't have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Oh, what do we learn from these passages? 
Because Jesus is truly human, he is able to sympathize with who? Look around. He's able to sympathize with us. He knows. Man, Jesus knows. Let that set in. Jesus knows. He knows. There's a Greek word, gnosko, for knowing. And it oftentimes relates to like an experiential knowledge, right? Jesus knows. He's experienced. Jesus knows. What does he know? He knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus knows what it's like to hunger and thirst and be tempted. Did you know that Jesus knows what it's like to be lonely? Are you lonely today? Are you? Do you know who can relate to you? Jesus. Jesus knows what it's like to be lonely, opposed, and oppressed. Jesus is more relatable than some of us may have first realized. He's more relatable. Hopefully now we see why the humanity of Jesus is so significant. So much is at stake. Is true? So much is at stake. Again, now let me just summarize it. Now I want you to think about this. If you take away the humanity of Christ, what do you lose? What do you lose? If Jesus weren't truly human, then he couldn't have lived for us. He couldn't have. He could, again, God demands obedience, human obedience. None of us can obey him perfectly. We've all failed. We needed a human, someone fully human to obey for us. And who obeyed for us? Christ. So again, if Jesus weren't truly human, then he couldn't have lived for us. He couldn't have died for us. He couldn't sympathize with us. He couldn't serve as our mediator. He couldn't serve as our example. And finally, are you ready for this? If he was not fully human, then we would have no hope of resurrection. I'm reminded of a quote from Athanasius of Alexandria. I like Athanasius. We'll be friends one day. He wrote this, The Son of God became man so that men might become sons of God. Let me say that again. The Son of God became man so that men might become sons of God. Now, Athanasius was not arguing that Jesus, the Son of God, became man to make us gods. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying that Jesus became man, the Son of God became man. Why? So that men might be brought near to God. So that God could bring us to himself. Jesus is the mediator. He's the way. Amen? Jesus, the Son of God, had to become man so that we could be brought near to God. There's no other way. It's true. He's the only way. Again, he's not arguing that Jesus, the Son of God, became man to make us gods, but rather that Jesus became man to bring us to God. Let me quickly highlight three applications directly related to this incredible doctrine. Now, I'm going to move through these quickly. First, we can rest. Who likes to rest? Come on, be honest. I, I like to rest. We can rest knowing that Jesus, who is truly human and truly God, both lived for us and died for us. So trust in him for salvation from sin and eternal death. That's the first thing. Second, we as Christians, if you're a believer, we can prayerfully delight in our friendship with Jesus. We can pray with confidence knowing that whatever we're facing, whatever we're facing right now, Jesus has been there and that our prayers will be heard because Jesus is our perfect mediator. 
So the second thing is pray. And the third is this. Third, we can joyfully look forward to a resurrection body like that of Christ because Christ, the God-man, was was raised. Rest, pray, and rejoice. I want to end with a few lines from the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and then I'll pray for us. I think this is from the second, second stanza. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, we pause this morning and we praise you. We praise you that you alone are the God-man, fully God and fully man, the perfect mediator between God and mankind, the only way for sinners like us to be brought into a relationship with God because, Jesus, you lived for us the perfect life And you died for us a sacrificial death in our place. And you were raised. And this good news, this gospel is the source of our hope. May we treasure it and may we proclaim it to others. Again, Jesus, we thank you that you left heavenly glory and you became man to bring us to God. And for that we say thank you and help us to live lives of gratitude as your people in response to this good news. And all God's people said, in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen.